Hello there my friend and welcome to the Ayurveda and Psychology podcast. I am Charlotte Skogsberg, your host for this podcast. I am enchanted to meet and to take you with me on this journey into the human psyche viewed from the holistic approach of yoga and Ayurveda viewed from the modern man approach of clinical psychology and psychoanalysis. So have something nice to drink next to you, maybe a cup of tea, have a seat or go out for a nice walk in nature maybe. Enjoy. In today's episode that focuses on psychology, I want to talk to you about a concept that has been called in the field of research in psychology, critical window. The critical window is something that came to the understanding as researchers were experimenting, first of all, actually with animals, with cats to begin with, actually. So they raised small kittens in an environment that was exclusively vertical or horizontal. And the kittens would only experience a surrounding with the vertical traits, for instance, for a period of three months. And after that, they would be blind to horizontal objects. Then they did the same kind of tests on adult cats for a whole year and they wouldn't change their capacity to see different objects compared to a normal cat. So this is really a question of the first few months in life of the cat. And they actually received a Nobel Prize for this and has been very useful in understanding, even for human beings, this critical window. So that means that We have a window early in life where we need to experience visually certain things in order to integrate them in our brains so that we can actually see them and understand them later on in life. This is closely linked to this concept of neuroplasticity that we have as well. And that when we start out in life, the younger we are, the stronger our neuroplasticity is. And we can see this actually in different indigenous people who are exposed, for instance, the Bedouins in the Zahara Desert have developed a capacity to register horizontal activity in a much more efficient way than just anyone else. However, they're a little bit slower in reacting to vertical movements. Whereas tribes in the Amazon have developed the opposite skill. So anything that's vertical, they will detect very quickly and then find it very hard to detect horizontal. They would even be those who proclaim that the Native Americans couldn't perceive the ships coming on the ocean as Columbus was approaching the shore because they had never been exposed to such a sight before. So what this means is that very early on in life, we learn how to perceive the world, and then we will have great difficulties to change that view later on in life. And of course, that will be almost quasi-impossible 
unless you're actually actively wanting to make any changes in that. So if you keep that in mind, just take the consequences of any kind of one-sided teaching that we have when we're small. Just our native language, for instance. We're exposed to it and only that very often in that critical window early on in life and for quite some time. But there's no reason we couldn't learn several languages at the same time when we start out in life. And then when we're adults, it becomes much more difficult to learn new languages, unless learning in itself has not been stimulated early on in life. And this explains, of course, why older generations will have real difficulties in learning to speak a foreign language. So if we would take, for instance, non-speaking, non-English speaking countries who now since, I don't know, let's say 30, 40, 50 years have had English um, as a subject in school very early on, that those generations have no issue speaking English. But that's a rather modern thing. So the generations, generations before that, they did not uh, learn English early on in, in school and which made it really hard for them to learn it later on in life. And of course, take things that are much more complex and much more abstract as gender roles or social skills or all the behavioral things that we learn very early on in life. Take how we understand relationships, how we develop a relationship to other people, but also to things and to nourishment as well, to food. All of those things that we were taught in the critical window of early years and that were never questioned, all of a sudden we can begin to understand the reasons why some of us find it impossible to understand each other. It's as if the world view is just not the same. There were people who were raised vertically, let's say, and those who were raised then horizontally. And basically they're banging their heads against a wall in order to try to make the other see what they've been seeing. So naturally, when you look at what you were taught in relationship dynamics, and that was never questioned, you will be oblivious to anything that doesn't correspond to that dynamic. Basically, you will be a three-month-old kitten crashing into the coffee table legs because you've not been used to seeing vertical traits, but only horizontal. So if you were raised in an environment where your parents had a very loving relationship, so that would be whether it's male-female or same-sex, if they were loving, harmonious and very equal, you would only see that as you grow up as well. That means that any kind of romantic relationship that doesn't correspond to what your eyes have been trained to see will even not be visible to you. It will be very foreign to you. It will be difficult to understand. What this basically means is if you haven't been taught something, it's 
quite impossible to do it. It doesn't mean that you can't. Of course you can. But it takes quite a lot of work. Now, this is what I experience very often when I work with people. They will keep repeating patterns of behavior that are either horizontal or vertical, if you will. And they will be quite oblivious to this fact because in their world, that is all that exists. If we then take in another, let's say, layer of how our brain functions, we have supposedly something called a negativity bias, which is something that was developed long time ago in our brain as a survival instinct. What this means is that when there was any kind of possibility of threat in our environment, anything dangerous, we would need to register that, so to pay attention to it, and we would need to specifically remember that so that when we come back to the same place, it would not be a risk to our lives, but that we would remember it and then adapt to it very quickly. If you would then put these two parts of your brain together, it means that whatever seemed threatening or dangerous, uncomfortable, bad, would be registered much faster than anything else and especially remembered. And if that is something that was presented in the critical window very early on in life, it would implement itself into our psyche as normal, as the perception of the world. So later on in life, that tendency to take note of what would be negative around us would just be the most natural thing ever. And if you begin to look around you, but also simply into your own behavior, you might begin to notice that that is very often the case with us. So this whole idea of limiting beliefs, as we would call it often, which are basically linked to a deeply rooted fear that we are not enough the way we are, that we are not lovable, that we need to modify ourselves in order to be accepted and therefore belonging to the group and therefore to survive, is not only something that is a negativity bias because we noted early on that there was a risk unless we corresponded to certain rules that we would be rejected by the group. But also, if it was part of our vertical vision, it would pure and simply become our worldview and we wouldn't even be capable of seeing something else. Take a minute to let that sink in. I want to take the opportunity to mention my online program for you. It's a program dedicated to healing all kinds of typical illnesses that we find in modern days, from chronic fatigue, anxiety, digestive issues, weight gain, weight loss, insomnia, and everything in between. Now, I've put this together in a way that we assure success through three individual consultations with me, eight 
group sessions with a whole group and educational material for you to digest whenever you can and want to. We work on healing whatever you want to heal, take care of whatever needs seem to be unmet in your organism, or even without trying to heal something specific, finding the perfect routine that works for you. If you are seeking to find more balance in your life, if you keep yo-yoing in how you're feeling physically, mentally, or emotionally, and never being able to really see how that stabilizes, then this program is for you. Get in touch with me, either through my website, yogisha.com, or send me directly an email, charlotte at yogisha.com, and we'll jump on a call to talk about it more. Thank you for listening back to the episode. What this means is, it is so natural for us to believe anything that's negative about us that it just feels like second nature. And it's, of course, the reason why when we try to make changes in life and we, for instance, begin with a more new agey way of doing things, of um, positive affirmations or things like that, it will feel so unnatural. And we will not believe it and we might even get reactions inside of us where it feels completely like lies. It feels completely inauthentic and we will find ways to make sense of that as well by then saying that if it feels that strange, it's because it definitely isn't true. This is the reason why there are situations where we will act not in our favor and we will be angry, scared, surprised, frustrated, upset with situations that feels so real, even if they aren't true. Now, let's say then as well that on top of that, you will attract other people who have the same worldview as you or same tendencies because of, well, the fact that you see mostly that and it feels familiar to you because you've been used to watching things that are vertical and here is someone who is also watching things as vertical. It feels like home. This is where it begins to become really difficult for us when we come to a point of walking around with other people with a vertical view of the world and then we have started to see that maybe there is something else even if we don't really see it yet because we've heard something and we were open to it and the reason we were open to it mainly is because we have crashed into the coffee table legs, to stay with that idea of the <laughs> kittens, for instance. What I mean by that is we need to have usually had some kind of experience that triggers the movement and the scaffolding of the structure that we've had is shaking. And so we begin to imagine that maybe there is other ways of doing things and we want to make changes in life. Now, because I I'm so in my vertical vision or horizontal or whatever you want to call it. it. Really, I hope you got that by now. It's really not a question about the vertical and the horizontal, of course. But because I'm so fixed in this perception that I've been installed with and that the people around me are as well, because that's why I have them around me. It becomes 
excruciating to break those habits. It becomes very hard to make the changes. But we need to step out of the patterns in order to be able to do it. Otherwise, it's basically impossible. It's really, really hard. And this is why, number one, you need to be indulgent. You need to be compassionate, basically, with yourself. Empathetic. Because it is so much harder than you would imagine. But there are some great tools that exist in order to be able to make this happen. We have, as I've spoken about in a, in a previous episode, studied the phenomena of habit formation and the fact that there is this loop that happens when we indulge in a habit that we have that starts with a trigger and then the behavior comes in and then there is some kind of reward that comes out of it and that's why we're so um, attached to it. And so by understanding how that happens in our brain, we can not only detach from the reward feeling of a habit that we don't want to keep, but more so create new habits. Because one of the most difficult parts of this is uh, that we can't just really get rid of one habit. We kind of need to replace it with something else, with a better version of it, for instance. That's our best call in the change in itself. A really good proof of this, which is not necessarily a wonderful one, is the vaping industry, right? So a lot of people wanting to stop smoking would then be able to do so by starting to vape instead. And the more they got conscious of the fact that they didn't want to smoke anymore the more they also got conscious, of course, of the taste of cigarettes that wasn't actually what they really were craving because it doesn't taste good. And so the vaping industry then invented, um, well, the fact that you can make your vape uh, taste like bubblegum and all kinds of sweet, sweet things instead. Your habit of the smoking isn't gone. It's just been replaced and it's just been placed on something else than what it was formed before. And you can, of course, use this same pattern in order to make better changes than for just vaping, for instance. And in order to do so, you need to um, optimize, let's say, this feeling of the reward. And that can be done through also different mindful practices, interestingly enough, of being extremely aware of what is happening and paying attention to the reward happening inside of you when you do something that makes you feel good, for instance. And you will kind of upscale the reward value of this thing because of how it makes you feel. The better it makes us feel, the easier it becomes a habit. So as a way to sum up a little bit what I've been speaking about today, I wanted to bring your attention towards the fact that it's so deeply wired the way you act, linked to what you've been taught in the first years of your life, so in your critical window, that it takes a lot to come to the point where you even become aware of it and then wanting to change it. But just because you want to change it doesn't mean that it happens easily because you are also surrounded by other people with the same worldview as you. So you kind of need to break free 
from the attachment you have to their opinion of you, actually, even, I would say. And it doesn't mean that you need to um, detach from everyone in your life. It just means that you need to start to attach your changes to something that is more rewarding. And so, for instance, this is, of course, why when people wanted to, and this started a long time ago, right? When people wanted to make changes, let's say, in, in how they were eating or you know, having weight gain, they would join these things like Weight Watchers when that came on. And all of a sudden, it was easier to make the changes of losing weight because they were breaking free a little bit from the patterns of the people they had around them. Because usually it's not a question of you're being overweight and no one else in your surrounding is. They would need to break free from that a little bit by finding like-minded people. So they would come into these groups where there were other people going through the same thing as them, having the same difficulties than they had, and also implementing the new habits together. And that way they would reinforce the reward value. They would reinforce their changing towards a horizontal view instead of the vertical. This is one of the best ways to make those changes. And once that you have strengthened them, what happens is that even though you go back to the people around you who have maybe not made that many changes, you have become, well, you've upscaled the reward, reward value of your new habits, which means that you're less interested in just falling back on the old patterns. And for me personally, this would, for instance, be the fact that I would notice that with healthy new habits that were linked to how I was eating, the relationship I had to food in general, and my morning habits, for instance, just by living that for a certain time with other people doing the same thing, when I would go back to being surrounded by people who hadn't maybe made those choices, I wasn't so attracted to going back into old habits again of, for instance, going out late at night, um, taking in toxins, eating things that might not good for you, drinking alcohol, these kind of things. Because the reward value that I had of how I felt in the morning when I had a healthy lifestyle and the whole day had upscaled so much that I was more addicted, if you will, to that reward value than the going out in the evening, for instance. And that is how we make changes. Now, if you're interested in making some changes, but you're experiencing a vertical or horizontal way of living surrounded by other people doing that, and you feel kind of imprisoned, not necessarily by the other people, but just in a lifestyle, then, of course, the fact that I'm working in group on the online project, the online program that I have, Nourish, Balance, Thrive, might be the perfect occasion for you to make those changes with like-minded people. So get in touch with me if you're interested in knowing more about that. You've got it through social media or through my website or even just emailing me at charlotte at yogisha.com. Thank you so much for choosing to listen to this podcast and this episode. I am very grateful. If you enjoyed this and you think that other people could enjoy this please help me to spread the word share this episode on any channel that you have of social media or messaging and even more so I would really appreciate if you know one other person who might benefit from my words today specifically 
take that one minute it takes to simply share this episode with one person. Remember that there's a human being on the other side of your phone, of your earpods, of this microphone. And I would love to hear your thoughts on what I've been talking about. So please leave a comment. Send me a message directly if you wish. This is Charlotte. This is me. See you next time. Namaste.